I will never cease to be amazed by the way that God orchestrates and coordinates and brings about our worship of himself. From the discussion that we had in Paul's class this morning to the catechism, to the things that Richard said about thankfulness, to the message that I have prepared for you this morning, I hope that you will better understand what I mean by that in a few moments that we have together. And I hope that you will appreciate that as I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel a great conviction from the conversation that we had this morning about the greatest crime against you being in corrupted worship. Father, this morning I pray that you would give each one of us here today the measure of grace required to bring about true sincere, joyful, wholehearted, pure worship of you. Father, I pray that you would give yourself glory through this small gathering this morning, that you would be pleased with our hearts and our minds as we filter out the distractions of this life and simply hear from your word. I pray that you would help me to think and to speak clearly, to, again, as we discussed this morning, simply clarify what is already written in your word. Father, I pray that you would bless us with those things this morning and that you would be pleased with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear friends, if we are honest, every one of us will admit that at least sometimes we don't much care for law. We might agree that there should be laws against things like robbing banks and murdering people, but those laws don't affect us very much because most of us have never been the victim of an attempted murder, and most of us don't struggle with the impulse to kill people and to rob banks. Those are sort of good laws to have generally out there for other people. But when a law starts to rub up against the way that we want to live, then our opinion of law and lawmakers can start to sour pretty quickly. Case in point, in a few weeks I will be driving my family to South Dakota for Christmas. I've made this trip many times, and I know that if I set my speedometer just five miles an hour over the speed limit, over the course of my 21-hour drive, it will gain me about 100 miles. Now, when you've been driving for 20 or 21 hours, that last 100 miles is usually the longest 100. Very often, you will appreciate if that 100 miles just goes away. Am I going to get pulled over for driving 5 miles an hour over the speed limit? Probably not. Does that mean that law is subjective? Many times, we would like to think that it is. So... What do you think of the speed limit when you are running late for something important? Or maybe you are someone who's never tempted to speed. That's just not what you do, and so that's not a problem for you. Well, then let me ask you, what is it for you? What laws, what rules, what standards start to make you feel a little bit constrained? What habits do you have that if someone were to shine a spotlight on them and say, hey, you really should not live like that, you would be tempted to 
get angry. Fundamentally, as a characteristic of being a human being since Genesis 3, our nature has driven us to believe that we are the most qualified people to make the rules for ourselves. And by the way, we are also most qualified for the executive and judicial offices, aren't we? If we fudge on a law here or there, who is best qualified to interpret our motivations and whether or not we were justified? Well, it's me, of course. As Americans, our national identity was born out of rebellion against tyranny, as it was perceived. No taxation without representation. What is that? That is, I reject anyone's authority to rule over me without taking my voice into account. And this is not a sentiment that is limited to the Revolutionary War. What was the slogan that we heard literally for years after the election of Donald Trump to the presidency? Not my president, right? And lest we should think that this is just a problem of those lawless Democrats, I heard the same thing for a long time after Joe Biden was elected. How quickly we chafe under authority that we think don't, doesn't take our ideas into account. Even as Christians, we can get sucked into the idea that law is an Old Testament principle. In the New Testament era, a few little sins here and there really aren't that big a deal when grace covers all. And if anyone insists too strongly that we ought to raise our standards of holiness too easily and too often, the response is to say, well, you're just being a legalist and I'm going to go to church somewhere else. On one hand, as Christians, we recognize that we aren't supposed to be lawless. And on the other hand, we know that we are not under the law. So how should we live then? Often, scripture is accused of being theoretical, unclear in its practical application. Do we just do our best, try to be good people and let grace cover the rest? Peter summarizes the Christian life in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, when he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, we know this. The goal of the Christian life is holiness. But that's not very helpful, is it? Be holy. How do you do that? If I were to tell you, take out the trash, you know the steps involved. Pull the bag out of the can, tie it up, take it out to the dumpster, throw it in. Mission accomplished. But be holy. How do you just be holy? To help us with that question, we will turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Philippians 3, verses 17 to 21, where the Apostle Paul gives us three intensely practical guides to direct us on the road to holiness. This sermon is designed to give you three very practical guides in your walk toward, toward holiness. Now, this is not to say these are the only guides available to us. However, they are three that Paul presents in this passage. As we will see, Christ's people have good examples to emulate. We have bad examples to avoid. 
and we have an identity to uphold. And those three things should help guide us along the road to holiness. Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. The first guide that we have in our walk to holiness is other mature believers. We have good examples to emulate. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, this might be a bit shocking at first. Paul's first instructions to the Philippians here is, be like me. Now, if you're familiar with that, that statement of Paul, probably what comes to your mind is 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, be imitators of me, even as I imitate Christ. But Paul doesn't say, even as I imitate Christ here in, in Philippians. He just says, be like me. It's kind of a Numbers 12.3 moment. In Numbers 12.3, he says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And whenever I read that, I imagine Joshua and Aaron maybe helping Moses to edit his manuscript, and they get to Numbers 12.3, and they read that, and really, Moses? Really? Uh, It seems prideful, right? Be imitators of me, Paul says. And actually, this is not the only place where Paul says this kind of thing. Paul says it here to the Philippians. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, he tells the Corinthians, be like me. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says, imitate my example. Is, is Paul trying to gather his own followers here? Is he trying to start a cult? What is going on? Well, we need to remember our context. First of all, Paul planted the Philippian church on his second missionary journey, which would have been after Paul's conversion, which would have been after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, meaning the believers in Philippi didn't actually know Jesus Christ personally. They didn't sit under his teaching. So when a church is planted in Philippi and they are looking for an example to follow after, they knew Paul. They knew what he taught and how he lived. So Paul can say, look at me and live like this. And by extension, that means be like Christ, even though Paul doesn't explicitly say it. Now, for us, we have scripture. We have the completed canon to go and read through the Old and New Testaments and find out what God expects from us and what Christ was like and how we ought to live. But again, the Philippians did not have much scripture at all, if any. There were no printing presses. The canon was not even completed. So they didn't have scripture to go to, to look at and and to read and get a full counsel of God and how they ought to live. So Paul says, look at me. Look at other mature believers to find out how to live practically. Finally, Gordon Fee says, this language this, this imitate-my-example language occurs in two kinds of contexts in Paul. Suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel 
and behavior that conforms to the gospel. In every case, imitation of Paul means as I imitate Christ. So that really is what Paul is saying here. And to support that, Paul says, not just my example, but also those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So look at my example, or look at the example of others who are living godly lives, and follow that example. We are natural imitators. Babies learn to walk and talk by imitating what they see and what they hear. I will never forget my oldest daughter, Lily, when she was about Knox's age. Most babies, when they're learning to walk, will stand up and it, it, through a process. They'll try to take a step and they'll fall over. They'll take a few steps and fall over, and they learn gradually to walk. Lily was a late walker. All my kids have been late walkers, but Lily stands out in my mind because the first time that she walked, she took off down the hall 17 steps. I counted. She just did it right the first time because she watched and then she did. When we were trying to teach her to talk, we would get down on her level and we would say a word over and over and over again. And I have never seen anyone concentrate on anything so hard in my life as Lily, as a little baby, staring at our mouths, trying to see how we formed words. And, and the next step in the process for Lily would be that she would mouth the words. No sound came out, but you could tell she, was, she wanted to get it right. And very often, the first time she said a word, it was clear, it was right. She learned because she watched us and repeated what she saw. It's instinctual. Children. Pick out sports stars or musicians or TikTokers these days. And they say, I want to be like that. And they start to change the way that they dress, the way that they talk, the things that they do. Even as adults, if we're going to a dinner, a social gathering, we might ask, well, who's going to be there? What's the dynamic going to be like? And we will dress for the occasion. Social experiments show that even as adults, we are uncomfortable standing out. Think of being at, a, at a, a party, a social gathering, dinner, and everyone has a chair, but there's no chair for you, so you're the only one standing. Uncomfortable, right? Or you're the only one sitting down, and there are plenty of chairs, but everybody else is standing. Most of us are going to stand up. We are natural imitators. We need to find good examples to follow after. Unfortunately, there are also many ungodly examples that we need to avoid. For many walk, Paul says, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Sometimes children will come into a room and see another child doing something they know they're not supposed to do. And the response will be, sit back and watch, right? And they wait smugly for that moment when an adult will come into the room and see the shenanigans that are going on and the other child is going to get what's coming to him. That is not our attitude. Paul says, I tell you even weeping that these are enemies of the cross of Christ. This is a tragic thing. Justice is a good thing and we can give God glory that he is just. But we do not take satisfaction from seeing anyone walking in rebellion against God. 
Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God through the prophet Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O Israel? This is not a good thing. And yet we have bad examples to avoid who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul gives us four characteristics of these people. Their end is destruction, he says. This kind of lifestyle has a predictable outcome. Sometimes I'll be driving, often on my way to South Dakota, going down the interstate, and somebody flies past me on the road. And my first thought is always, did I break down? And my second thought is, you know what? If they keep keep driving like that, one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to pass them in a few minutes, pulled over by a squad car on the side of the road, or I'm going to pass them in a few minutes, rolled over in the ditch. It's got a predictable outcome. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, says Peter, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Again, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. These enemies of the cross of Christ have a predictable outcome, that is, destruction. And their God is their appetite. God is an objective reality who exists independently from us. All proper moral standards are based on the character of God. But then we have people who reject God and they reject his standards. So they are forced to try to come up with their own glory, their own God, and their God is in their appetites. This reminds me of the psychologist Abraham Maslow who developed a hierarchy of human needs. Maslow's concern was in figuring out what is it that makes human beings truly happy. And so he developed this pyramid of needs that man must have met in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled. And the lowest level uh, of his hierarchical needs is the physiological needs. We need things like food, water, shelter, clothing, and, and we can't really meet any higher needs until those needs are met. So once your physiological needs are met, you can pursue safety. That's, that's the next level of need. And after that comes love and belonging, then esteem from others, and then self-actualization. Well, what is implied in this hierarchy of needs is that we must submit to our impulses if we are going to be happy, if we are going to be fulfilled, if we are going to be self-actualized. The reverse of that is you cannot be happy unless you submit to the impulses to need. This is not to say that every unbeliever always does the worst thing or the first impulse that pops into his mind. He may have competing appetites. 
if I am at my, my parents' house and I have a drug addiction, I might be tempted to steal something to pawn off so that I can get some drug money. On the other hand, I might have an appetite for a good relationship with my parents. So maybe I will be prevented from, from stealing, from doing that thing by a competing appetite. But the enemies of the cross of Christ idolize their appetites, their impulses, whatever feels good in the moment. And their glory is in their shame, Paul says. Glory is something that secures praise or renown, a distinguished quality or asset. Glory is worthiness. It is something that inspires awe. Glory is a characteristic of God. Now, God made us to share in his glory. God made human beings to have glory by association. We don't have any of our own. What are we? Creatures made from the dirt? But we crave glory because we were made to share in it. Glory is a characteristic of God. Exodus chapter 40 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence is characterized by his glory. Isaiah chapter 6, And one called out to another, that is seraphim, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Luke chapter 2, When the angels appeared to the shepherds to announce the birth of the Savior, Uh, An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were very frightened. But the penultimate summary, I think, of our relationship to God's glory comes from Exodus chapter 33, where we read, Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he, that is God, said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, Moses, if you saw my glory full on, it would kill you. To come humbly to the cross of Christ is to admit with Paul that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has glory. We do not. But those who reject the glory of God will try to manufacture their own. They will look for glory in their own gods, which, as we have just seen, is their own appetites. Now, for someone whose God is their appetite, what kinds of things will they seek glory in? All kinds of things for which they ought to be ashamed. Who can drink the most? Sexual conquest. How much physical wealth can they amass? All kinds of things that are nothing. The psalmist in Psalm 49 has an answer to that. He says, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. 
For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him, though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And the last characteristic of these enemies of the cross of Christ is that they set their minds on earthly things. These people are primarily focused with the here and now. And this tends to show up in one of two ways. One, they don't really care about anything. Ah, who cares? Let's go get drunk. Let's go indulge. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or they worry about everything. Those who are focused on earthly things will worry about everything. There's always something that might go wrong. For the last several weeks, I've been hearing about a red wave. Got an election coming up. There's going to be a red wave. Well, to the best of my understanding, that failed to materialize. You know what? It's too bad. And we move on. I know who is really sitting on the throne. God, in his sovereignty, is going to take care of me, is going to take care of our country, and is going to take care of my future. So be it. This is his decision. Those who are heavenly-minded don't need to worry about earthly circumstances. Our final guide on the road to holiness is that Christ's people have a heavenly identity, a heavenly citizenship to uphold. For our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. Well, what does our citizenship have to do with how we live? Allow me to illustrate. Brittany Griner is the center for the Phoenix Mercury in the WNBA. On February 17th, she was arrested in Russia on drug charges. She has been detained there ever since, has gone through a full trial, and has been sentenced to nine and a half years in a Russian labor camp. She appealed her sentence on the grounds that the the drug paraphernalia in her possession uh, was barely over the legal allowable limit, that she did not mean to commit a crime, and that she was just given she was given just six months short of the the maximum sentence. In other words, her her sentence was inordinately harsh. But her appeal has been denied. Her transfer from prison in Moscow to the penal colony where she is to spend the next nine and a half years began on October 25th. And as I understand it, these kinds of transfers can take anywhere from two weeks to three months. So she is somewhere in transit on her way to a labor camp. And as of November 9th, her lawyers have reported that they have no idea where she is. She was taken from prison in Moscow and she is somewhere in Russia. That being said, Russian prisons are not known for their good conditions, and the penal colonies are known for having worse conditions than the prisons. It's a bad place to be. Well, what does citizenship have to do with anything? In a word, everything. Brittany Griner is an American citizen, not a Russian one. So despite her predicament, 
and the fact that she did technically actually commit a crime, Brittany Griner can expect that the government of the United States will be working on her behalf to get her and bring her back home. Our heavenly citizenship has present implications. Our outlook on life is that we are citizens of a government that is working to bring us home. And on that note, we have a responsibility to represent our home and our king well, even when the nation in which we reside is hostile toward our place of citizenship. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. The question in Greiner's case is whether the U.S. government will be capable of convincing the Russians to release her into U.S. custody. Friends, we don't have that problem. Our citizenship has future implications. Even though we live on this earth for now, that the Lord will come to take us home from here is an inevitable, is as inevitable as the destruction of his enemies is. So, we have seen that as followers of Christ, we have some very practical guides by which to check our daily living. We can look around us, see mature believers, and follow after their example. We can look around us and see people living as enemies of God and recognize, I can't live like that. And we have an identity to uphold. Now, I started out by talking about law. We need to return to that idea briefly because I don't want to mislead you. I don't want to give you the wrong impression of what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul says, follow my example and the example of others who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And then he goes on to contrast his example with people who live as though they are a law unto themselves. In essence, lawless people. So if we take this as it is, and stop here, we might make the mistake of thinking that what Paul is saying is that Christian life is about keeping law. Look at me, look at these bad examples, don't be like them, keep the law. But that is not what Paul is saying. We know that Paul wrote that great treatise on Christian freedom, the book of Galatians. But from Philippians, we don't have to go back that far to see Paul's opinion of law-keeping. Let's go back just a little bit, starting in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3. We are in the same chapter. Paul says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." 
More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, there's a lot in here. I don't have time to address everything that Paul says, but here's the gist of it. In one breath, Paul says, beware of false teachers. Verse 2, the dogs, evil workers, the false circumcision. Who's the false circumcision? We often refer to them as the Judaizers. They are those who insist that you must keep the law, if not to be saved, to earn God's favor. Have to keep the law. Paul calls them dogs, evil workers, false teachers. In the next breath, Paul says, beware of lawless people. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Beware false teachers who say you have to obey the law. Beware of bad examples who say you don't follow the law. What do we do with that? Well, I think we've seen a good summary of the Christian life. Peter says, of God, referencing the book of Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. But John, chapter 14, verse 15, has a very interesting summary of the Christian life as well. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. People have a lot of motivations for keeping the law. We want to have a good upstanding social social tendency. We want to be respected. Maybe we're afraid of prison time. But Jesus provides a motivation here for, for obedience to him if you love me. Paul doesn't seem to think much of law one way or the other. Don't get me wrong, we are not to be lawless. But Paul's motivation is not earning favor with God, nor is it indulging every whim because we're free from the law. Paul's motivation is to love Christ. So, we follow the good examples of those who love Christ. We avoid the bad examples of those who do not love him. And we look forward to the time when he will make all things new by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you thankful. As Richard pointed out, thankful that you have worked your grace in our lives to bring us to this place where we come together We gather to give you worship. I thank you for your word that you have preserved for us, that we have a fuller picture of who you are and what you expect from us and how you would have us to live than those first century believers in Philippi who were looking to Paul to be their example. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to better know your son, Jesus Christ, so that we might live like him, that we might emulate his example And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would conform us into your image to give yourself glory through him.
It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen.